From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The future of warfare, or at least the beginning of warfare in the future, is going to be in space. I'm certain of that. And I don't think people really appreciate uh, just how important this domain is or how much work the Chinese in particular have done to get ready for that future contest. That's David Ignatius. He's been a foreign affairs columnist at The Washington Post since 1999. He's also an accomplished novelist, having published 11 full-length spy thrillers that draw on decades of reporting on the CIA and other global intelligence agencies. Ignatius joins me to discuss the escalating race between the U.S. and China to control space, how artificial intelligence could influence the future of warfare, and his latest four-part novella published in The Washington Post this summer. That's coming up. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey folks, a slight programming change. As many of you know, Donald Trump was just indicted on four counts by a grand jury in connection with January 6th. Yes, this is the third indictment of the former president. My insider co-host Joyce Vance and I recorded an emergency episode about the indictment. We go through the charges and the challenges, and we answer a lot of questions you might have. Like, who are the six co-conspirators referenced in the indictment, and could they soon face charges too? Given the significance of the news, the paywall is down so everyone can listen. So in lieu of a Q&A in this episode, you can listen to our analysis at cafe.com slash Trump. Enter your email address to listen for free. That's cafe.com slash Trump. And if you already receive emails from Cafe, then check your inbox. I'll be right back with my conversation with David Ignatius. For decades, David Ignatius has been a reliable and trusted observer of foreign affairs, which he writes about in his bi-weekly column for The Washington Post. His latest spy novella was inspired by real-life events between the CIA and Chinese intelligence operatives. David Ignatius, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Breed. Do you realize it's been over four years since you've been on the podcast? It seems like a hundred. Shocking. Um, <laughs> I hadn't calculated that, but I'm glad. My failure. That. It's a failure on my part. Um, a lot has happened since we last spoke, but what I thought we'd talk about a bunch is an issue that's near and dear to your heart, both in your journalism, your opinion writing, and in your fiction writing, which we'll also get to. I want to talk about China and spying. So a few months ago, all the eyes of the world, particularly in the United States, were focused on these spy balloons. I haven't heard a thing about them since. Why is that? I think the main reason is that the Chinese haven't sent any our way, uh, according to the sources I've talked to in the Pentagon. The Chinese got caught. They were embarrassed. These are of limited intelligence collection value, and they decided the embarrassment was not worth the intelligence gain. I'm sure they'll be back. The Chinese are very interested in what they call near space, what we call near space, not not quite in orbit, 
not quite a high-flying plane. And obviously, they have some intelligence collection value, but people I talk to say not all that much. Did we overstate the significance of these balloons? I think in an ultimate sense, yes, we did. The Chinese had been flying them for some years. We were aware of their balloon program. They'd made a number of circumnavigations of the globe. But when a spy balloon is visible above Montana and local news cameras can <laughs> let viewers watch the, the balloon drift uh, ever deeper into the United States, it, it almost demands some action. I think it was not handled in the best way. I think when the balloon first crossed into the U.S. was the time to have a conversation and issue a statement. The, the, the way in which this seemed to kind of sneak up on the country and on President Biden added to the, the sense that we were under attack. We weren't. Have we understood or has anyone come to understand what exactly the Chinese learned from those balloons? Publicly, in terms of what I can tell your listeners, no, beyond the obvious fact that they were collecting signals, they were able to target locations such as our missile silos that they were overflying to get more precise readings. But beyond that, precisely what they were doing, I don't know. I asked questions of people in the Pentagon at the time. For example, were they releasing tiny drones that might then no bigger than a hummingbird that might then fly to targets and do special collection. I was told no, no evidence of that. The utility of these balloons, why the Chinese have been so interested in them, uh, is a bit of a mystery given their extraordinary capabilities in space. In space, their technology is close to, in some cases, beyond that of the United States. Well, I want to talk about that because you have said that's an important frontier and you said Beijing recognizes that space is the ultimate high ground and wants to control it. What do you mean by that? So virtually every aspect of our national defense and increasingly of our nation's commerce is linked to assets in space. The most obvious is GPS, which allows us not simply to know where we are, but is the basic um, piece of technology that makes cell phone communication possible. Uh, precise uh, location of the position of your receiver, your phone, and the satellites that are transmitting signals to it is, uh, is crucial. Those systems rely on our longstanding assumption that space was a peaceful domain where you could have commercial assets like that. That's no longer the case. The, the Chinese have demonstrated anti-satellite capability. Going back to 2007, they shot down one of their own satellites in a catastrophic move, leaving all, all kinds of debris, thousands of pieces of debris. Uh, but that was intentional. That was, a that was intentional to demonstrate the capability. They've since, the U.S. believes, developed uh, anti-satellite weapons in space that could capture a satellite that they wanted to take out of orbit, that could use cyber attacks without ever actually touching the other satellite from a kilometer or, or, or more away. You can send signals through lasers and high-powered microwaves in space that can disable and maybe uh, recode uh, adversary satellites. So the, the Chinese have understood, I think really going back to the, to the Gulf War in 1991, that America's ability to project power around the world depended on this network of satellite assets uh, and th that this was the key to our power and that if they wanted to really challenge the United States, they'd have to have the capability to disrupt our satellite communications uh, infrastructure. And they developed that capability. They have it now. They use ground-based lasers to dazzle our uh, reconnaissance satellites. So we've had to reconfigure those satellites, put what amount of dark glasses on them so they, they can see even when they're being dazzled. Uh, Wait, explain what you mean by that. Is that. It's not like when people use laser pointers uh, at JFK and point them at pilots and airplanes? Yes. So, so they have the effect of blinding op optical sensors if they're not protected. From the ground? Uh, spy set, yes, from, from, from the ground or conceivably uh, in space, but ground-based lasers are, are effective, have been used. Uh, the U.S. now has countermeasures Another simple example, Preet, but one, one that's absolutely critical for our defense is our ability to detect missile launches, launches of what could be adversary ballistic missile attacks. Um, those satellites had been extraordinarily vulnerable to 
to compromise. They were not hardened against cyber or other attacks uh, in space. They're being hardened now. The U.S. again with this, we 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 own space. We we're the space country. Just assumed that we'd have that we'd have mastery. So we had a few very vulnerable uh, key intelligence assets in space that we depended on. It never occurred to us that those could be knocked out. That, that we were as vulnerable as we turned out to be. Could you describe, if you understand, the way that the anti-satellite weapon works? Space to space, is it is it a missile? Is it a laser? Is it a bomb? Is it ground to satellite, or what? All of the above, probably. The Chinese, as I say, demonstrated in two thousand seven that they could fire a missile from Earth to space and hit precisely one of their own satellites and destroy it. The problem is that that satellite, which was in low Earth orbit, left a field of debris estimated at two to 3,000 tiny pieces of debris spinning in orbit at enormous speed that could destroy other satellites if, if people aren't very careful about exactly where each piece of debris is and what satellite's track is. Another way that the Chinese or, or, or anybody, including the United States, could disrupt an adversary is by interfering with ground communications with satellites. And you could do that by having special forces attack uh, one of the island bases where these ground stations are, or you could do it by having a cyber attack on that ground station that uh, interrupts its ability to feed signals into space. In terms of weapons in space, the Chinese have shown an ability to position satellites very close to other satellites, their own in the tests, but it could have been, could have been ours, and use um, what amount to kind of grabbers to take the satellite and draw it into the same orbit as the attacking satellite and then carry it somewhere else for satellites that are in a fixed position above the Earth in so-called uh, geo uh, orbit, geocentric orbit. Uh, it's possible to take satellites there. Bulk of our of our key communication satellites are in that position, and pull them into what's called the graveyard zone, which is out beyond geo. It's in much deeper space, and leave them there. The Chinese have also demonstrated something that I, I found find astounding, which is they've pushed some of their satellites, which appeared to be dead, finished, give them a last push into this graveyard zone. They've stayed there, apparently dead and then come back to life after months or years and come back into positions from which they could attack. And then finally, I just would note that everything we know about cyber attacks on Earth is possible in space using these new technologies of high-powered microwaves and lasers, which can inject code through space at, a, at an adversary target, perhaps not leaving any trace it's really quite frightening to think that the assets you'd rely on suddenly would be disabled in the time you needed them most. So there's a range of these capabilities. One question is how much of this has the United States done to be able to uh, deter and compete with China? And that is one of the hardest things to find out I've encountered in, in my work as a, as a journalist. It is so highly classified and you, you cannot get people uh, to talk about it on any basis. So, have you uh, tried interviewing Donald Trump about this stuff? <laughs> well, that's, a good, that's a good idea. He's probably just ask stuck. him. He's probably got it in one. He of those probably boxes. has some documents. Yeah, he might well have. Uh, I, but I haven't <laughs> tried Donald Trump, but I've tried a lot of people. And that's free advice, David. No, I pre I appreciate it. There's something you said a few minutes ago about our ability to detect other nations' missile launches. Is our ability to detect a preemptive nuclear strike from Russia or some other country? predicated almost entirely on our satellite capability, or do we have other capabilities? And the reason I ask is if there's a sustained attack on our satellite capability, does that blind us to a launch or not? So we're living in a new world in which we're not dependent as a country on our so-called national technical means, our government's satellites, but can turn to commercial satellites. So the, there are commercial surveillance satellites put up by companies like Maxar that circle the globe. So if, if, you, if you're in Ukraine and you want a sense of the battlefield, the United States can feed you intelligence, but you can also buy intelligence from these commercial satellites that are constantly or orbiting Ukraine and everywhere, everywhere else. So 
you have that information. Among the commercial satellites that's up there uh, are, are satellites that detect thermal events. So a thermal event could be a, a volcano eruption. You'd want to know about that. Another thermal event could be a missile, missile launch. This has been extremely valuable, again, to Ukraine in detecting tank fire. They can locate tanks even when they're well camouflaged by the thermal event that's observable from space of the cannon firing. They can dial down the exact signature. They know what a, a cannon, uh, the explosion from a cannon barrel looks like uh, in terms of the heat signature. So, um, and, the, and there are other, other satellites, I could go through a range of things. There's synthetic aperture radar s satellites in space, commercial satellites that can see in the dark. The, that could, there, there are satellites that can see through buildings, see the images through heat. So people can buy all this now. So we're going to be okay on detecting yes. a launch before it's too late. Simple, simple answer is, is that there will be other ways to detect okay. launches. I was a little, <laughs> so you talk about the capabilities that China and other countries are developing and some questions about what capabilities the United States has or is reaching for. Is there any regime of understanding international agreement about what nation states can do in space? So there's a treaty that bars the use of nuclear weapons in space, but there isn't... Um, What's the point of, of barring nuclear weapon in space? Well, it was thought that a nuclear explosion in space would be catastrophic, would destroy any country's ability to use space because of the of the debris. It just would it would pollute that zone. Turns out that many of the same effects uh, resulted from the Chinese hitting just one satellite and creating the, the debris field that I mentioned earlier. But there is that basic piece of of international uh, arms control. There's a desire now to broaden that, but a question of, of how to do that, as with any arms control agreement, you're worried that you'll make an agreement, the other side will cheat, and yeah. it's extremely hard to detect cheating, obviously, in space. Uh, the Chinese worry, to give them their due, that uh, Elon Musk's nearly 3,000 satellites in low Earth orbit could have modular packages installed that have, in a crisis, intelligence uses for the United States. Uh, that Starlink array connects through a mesh network. It doesn't necessarily have to go down to Earth. They connect in a mesh network in space and can jump the signals back and forth between satellites that are very difficult to intercept and, and detect. So could those commercial assets become valuable to, to the United States in a conflict. Um, we've seen how valuable the commercial Starlink array is to Ukraine. Ukraine, Ukraine commanders in the, in the, in the east, uh, in Bakhmut, this terrible siege of Bakhmut, yeah. could not have communicated, could not have received the coordinates for precise artillery fire without their ability to use the Wi-Fi system that Starlink provides from space to do their broadband communications and, and exchange signals. So they're incredibly important. Um, thank goodness that Elon Musk has been able to provide this capability. My worry is, what if one day he decides, I don't like this anymore. I don't, I don't yes. feel good about the Ukraine war. Well, That's you've it. anticipated my question, because on the one hand, we know that there are government satellites, and as you point out, there are also networks of private commercial satellites among them, some owned by Elon Musk's company. He's kind of moody. <laughs> to what, put it mildly. Yeah, so, so what can the government do to protect itself from the vagaries of one guy? So there are a growing number of commercial operators that have hundreds and as soon in the thousands of satellites in low orbit seeking to compete with Musk for providing broadband uh, internet or other things. Amazon is looking to develop a network that could have 2,000 satellites rivaling Musk's uh, that, that they call Kuiper, K-U-I-P-E-R. Uh, it's, it's not beyond the, the planning stage yet, but I think they're likely to do it. It would have great utility for, for Amazon. There's a British company, similarly, that has a thousand or so satellites. So you're saying that the solution in part is to have more commercial satellites from different companies rather than expand the number of government satellites. So I, I've come to think that uh, if you have enough commercial providers, the likelihood that, that, that they'd all go on strike together uh, is, is limited. I don't think any government would want to be dependent on the whims of 
commercial vendors uh, to protect the security of its people. Uh, and our government shouldn't shouldn't do that either. So you'd want to have redundancy. You'd want to make sure that if if all the commercial providers quit, or if if an adversary's malware somehow took them out of the picture, that should still be able to operate. I think you know, pre just to underline the basic point that the future of warfare, or at least the beginning of warfare in the future, is going to be in space. I'm certain of that, and I don't think people really appreciate. Uh, just how important this domain is or how much work the Chinese in particular have done to get ready for that future contest. Who else is in the space, uh, if I if I can, of space? You have the U.S., you have the Chinese. Any other players? Russia, India? Uh, Russia and India both, both have satellite capability. Uh, Russia historically was our rival. We, uh, we yeah. forget that it was Russia that had the first uh, satellite in orbit, had the first uh, man in orbit, Yuri Gagarin. Before we did, it was a humiliation for the United States. The Russians went through a deep trough uh, after the end of the Soviet Union. Their space enterprise was, like everything else in Russia, looted by oligarchs. Uh, assets were sold off. Piecemeal. Did they spend all those resources on having the most magnificent ground army in the world? <laughs> not, not, I think it met, went mostly for villas in Cannes and townhouses in London. Myself, but um, the the Russian space program was stripped. It was notoriously corrupt. But the Russians have, have come back. They've demonstrated an intriguing uh, capability. I'm sure your listeners probably know the uh, Russian matryoshka dolls, the nesting dolls, where you have like a bulbous doll, you take it apart, and then inside there's another doll. Open that up. Inside, you, you can have five or six dolls nested together. Well, the Russians have done that with satellites. So they, they have a an observer satellite that's been detected in orbit, getting closer and closer in position to a target, again, one of their own satellites. And then that satellite will open and another smaller satellite will emerge, an attack satellite that has different capabilities that can go directly toward the target and, and in theory, take it out. So uh, the, the Russians are still competing. You know, Russia is, is, is such a corrupt site, has brilliant uh, scientists, and technicians, but um, it, it isn't anywhere near where the United States and China are, nor are any of our other partners, sometime competitors. The Iranians have a primitive space program. The Indians are pretty aggressive, but nowhere near us. Many countries, interestingly, have their own global positioning satellites. China has a system they call Beidou, which is Chinese, I think, for the North Star, uh, which is a very effective, efficient alternative to, to GPS. Uh, Europe has its own system, similarly, that uh, could be a fallback if GPS ever went down. The Russians have a system called GLONASS. The Indians have a system. The Japanese have a system. So everybody sees the importance of space and wants to have its own protection. But the, but the two biggest players are the U.S. and China. I'll be right back with David Ignatius after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise. An original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. The less your business spends on operations, multiple systems, and delivering your product, the more margin you have to keep the money you've earned. But that's hard to do with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing. So to reduce costs and headaches, 
smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a top-rated cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. netsuite.com slash preet. Are satellites mostly a source of intelligence gathering and surveillance, or will there come a time when satellites themselves are capable of launching certain kinds of weapons upon the ground? That's one of the things I think that concerns our Space Force, the new service that was created by President Trump, and what I should say I think was a good decision by President yep. Trump. It's something that a lot of people made fun of. You write, it was, quote, one of the few solid decisions of his presidency, end quote. I, I said that in a column, and I, I said it at the time. It was much more unpopular what I said it at the time because it was that the Air Force hated it and the Pentagon brass were all opposed to it. But uh, in, in truth, Trump and his, his advisors were right. The Air Force had dropped the ball, and, and we did need to have need to have this uh, this Space Force. But one of the things that Space Force commanders uh, say they're, they're worried about most is Chinese orbital bombardment satellites. These are satellites that would be in orbit that could suddenly come down from orbit. Like imagine a space shuttle uh, that we had uh, suddenly turning into a weapon and targeting a city somewhere and landing in the middle of that. Ma imagine what a space shuttle at high speed, an unmanned space shuttle at high speed could do to Washington, D.C. if it hit on the mall. Uh, and you get a sense of what these orbital bombardment satellites could do. They wouldn't necessarily be nuclear. They would be conventional weapons, so you wouldn't respond in the nuclear domain. How would you respond to, a, to an attack? Well, I guess the, I don't know enough about the, the math and the velocity and countermeasure issues. Are you saying that because they're coming from a space orbit, they would be so fast that they couldn't be shot down? I believe that the current um, judgment uh, in the Pentagon is that there is not an effective defense against these. There may there may be, but you'd have to have a, an incredibly large, strong attacking missile or beam to, to have any chance of stopping this. It's just, I mean, again, think of something that the size, dimension of the space shuttle targeting a particular place uh, on Earth. Would we be pretty good at knowing that a country was deploying such a potential weapon in space? So the Chinese have actually deployed what they, they what we, we call, they call a space plane. They've tested it twice. It didn't get much publicity. It should have uh, because it, it is, as I say, a new leap in, in potential weaponry in space. There are other kinds of space bombardment. Um, one thing that satellites are vulnerable to is jamming from earth stations which send up signals that, that blur the signal the satellite is sending down so it's very hard to receive but interestingly you can also do jamming from space you can jam the satellites that are way up in this geo orbit circling the globe at fixed points uh, by using signals uh, from satellites in low earth orbit much further down that blind or confuse the receivers on the ground. They send signals in the direct line that the signals from the further out geosatellite would be would be using. That's that I just read a paper by three Oxford scientists that focuses on this. When I tried to ask uh, officials from Space Command about it, they said, well, we just can't talk about it. What do you mean? It's in a journal. Of course you should talk about it. But again, it, it illustrates just how uh, serious people are about classification limits. Is there a little bit of a silver lining here insofar as this next frontier is so difficult and costly and requires such an enormous amount of resources and technical and technological proficiency that the battlefield is limited to just a few players and you won't have rogue states or you know smaller nation states that are mortal enemies of the United States like North Korea and others playing in this field? 
Well, I think it does limit the number of adversaries, perhaps limits that number to one, China. It's not easy now to see a country that would be a likely adversary that could, that could develop uh, similar capabilities. And I think the fascinating thing isn't simply the the reduced number of combatants, but the possibility that conflict could be limited to a kind of game of space chess, challenging each other's assets and achieving what amounted to communications, weapons delivery, dominance. And then you wouldn't fight the war on Earth because the result would be almost guaranteed by the outcome of the initial combat in space, the the, the positioning of the battlefield. You'd have gigantic so, transformer robots <laughs> in space. Are we developing that capability, David? Um, yes. I mean, what's what's a satellite if not a, if not a, you know, a robot? Right. Uh, man system. Right. The um, nature of warfare as AI moves in and you know thinks of strategies, thinks of ways to disable satellites, thinks of how satellites communicate with each other and what vulnerabilities might be, does machine learning on every communication that's been collected from adversary satellites and then and then looks at, at the, you know looks for anomalies, looks for holes that could be penetrated by the malware. It just um, it's endless. Uh, this is an area I think in which the United States is significantly ahead and is likely to remain so. But e e even so, it's uh, Henry Kissinger who was amazingly at the end of his life. He's a hundred years old now. He might have another hundred. I don't know that he's near the end. Well, I I wouldn't guess another hundred. But he's but he's still thinking hard. And the thing he's thinking most about is what AI will do to the future of warfare, and that includes uh, AI in space. And, and he has told me in, in an interview a few months ago that where early in his career he was focused on the control of nuclear weapons, it's now the weapons themselves will be controlled by AI. It's controlling AI that's the challenge for people who have the dream that he did of, of finding systems to stabilize conflict. And uh, that's something we're trying to talk to the Chinese about. I gather in the recent conversations that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, had and uh, Tony Blinken, the Sec Secretary of State, had with the Chinese, there was a little bit of discussion of how to start a dialogue on, on, on this issue of, of AI and emerging technologies, maybe including space technologies. So is it, is it what's more likely, that we will go to war at some point in the future with the Chinese, or we will go to war at some point in the future with our AI overlords. Hmm. <clears throat> That's a novella for you. It's, it's another novella. <laughs> I'm not in the Paul Revere, the AI breakout is coming uh, yet. I mean, I, I think AI is still our servant. It's amazingly powerful. Anybody who's played with chat uh, GPT-4 can attest to that. But it's still basically, you know, adding the last word in a sentence. It knows nine yeah, hundred. But it's an words. infant. It's an infant. Like when I think about it, if you, if you think of AI as a having a lifespan just for the sake of a thought experiment of a human of 80 or 85 years, AI is like one day old. I agree with that. As AI adapts, we'll adapt our ability using AI to control it. Um, will we? Will we? <laughs> will we, David? I think we will, yeah. I mean, I, so I'm, my, my greatest failing as a journalist, I've often thought, is I'm too optimistic. And it may be in this case, too. But I, I, I do think uh, we created it. Smartest people in this field are thinking about how to, how to, how to prevent AI Armageddon. And, and I think, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll think about controls. The, the, the point at which an AI system begins to direct itself, write its own algorithms, optimize what it thinks is best, that's some distance off, and the ability to control for that, I think, is you know, even even given what you say. These are infants; they'll grow up. As we, as we all know, the teenager has a mind of his or her, her own, but um, you know, the parental controls can still be exerted. I said a few minutes ago that maybe a silver lining in the space race is that rogue states, individual small states who want to launch terror attacks, can't really play because it's too cost intensive labor-intensive, and it requires a lot of technology. Do you think AI helps to eliminate that gap for smaller states in a way that can make them more dangerous? 
I mean, I think AI will make uh, small states, individual actors, um, you know, fanatical groups, potential terrorist groups, more powerful. The, the te technology is is there. It's going open source. The, you know, the, I mean, when you think about the ability to apply it to engineering bioweapons, to me, the scariest possibility. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very grim future. So. Using AI wisely to control AI, I, I think is, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the best defense against rogue or offensive AI is probably going to be defensive AI. And um, one thing I've seen with cyber war in Ukraine is that it turns out that defense is stronger than we thought, I would say, and offense is weaker than we thought. Russians have really been trying hard to use cyber weapons against Ukraine with limited success because of the ability to patch, to, to quickly alter code, to move things to the cloud. The cloud ends up being a wonderful protection for a country like Ukraine if it can get its key data into the cloud quickly enough. Do you have any understanding of whether or not AI in its current or future forms will allow smaller states to develop nuclear weapons? Or is the main, I don't even know the answer to this, is the main obstacle resources and enriching of uranium or some other such thing rather than having the technology of how to make the warhead and how to make the delivery system. So the, the you know, plan to make a, a bomb has been around ever since Progressive Magazine published it back in the early 70s, I think. Uh, there was an enormous fight over the decision to, to, to publish that. But the, how a bomb is put together and, and works is understood. There's precision engineering that's involved that even the Iranians, a tech, technologically very advanced country, have not, as my understanding, fully figured out. I mean, they, they could make a primitive bomb that you drop from a bomber, like uh, over Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but um, making one with the precision that it's small enough to fit atop a missile is much harder. Um, triggering the fissionable material, there's something they call a neutron trigger that gets it just at precisely the point of, of uh, collision to make the reaction possible is extremely difficult. The, uh, I wrote a novel some years ago about the Iranians trying to steal that secret uh, of uh, the neutron triggering mechanism for a bomb when their nuclear program was, was active. So AI will make that process easier, but AI won't be able to do the, to machine the metals, um, to configure the precise package. Uh, that'll still be pretty hard. Can't you 3D print that now? Um, <laughs> I honestly don't know the answer. But Pete, every time I try to give you a reason why it's not <laughs> going to be apocalyptic, you come up with a good counterexample. So I, I don't know whether you can. Well, I think I think you've written or quoted someone saying, the optimist and the, and the pessimist both die the same way. The optimist <laughs> lives a better life. Do you believe that? That's, well, you know, I, I do believe that. But then, but then I would because I'm optimistic. So the glass half full for you. You know, I I, uh, I I've seen so many uh, terrible things uh, in my time as a foreign correspondent around the world. Um, the resilience of people and countries. I remember going to uh, Vietnam, where I never was during the war, but I sure read a lot about it. And I, I read a book called The Village of Ben Suk by a New Yorker writer named Jonathan Shell. It was about how this village in, near the Cambodian border uh, in, uh, in eastern Vietnam had been obliterated, um, you know, defoliated, pounded by B-52, repeated B-52 sorties. So I had always wanted to go there to see what, you know, what was left of this village. So when I went to Vietnam, when I was foreign editor at the Washington Post in 1991 probably, I asked to go to this village, got a somebody take me from Saigon. And you know what? You could barely see that there'd been a war there. The B-52 craters were all obliterated. The jungle had grown back everywhere. You'd look for people and say, does anybody here remember like when, when the, and, and it was hard to find people who remembered. Uh, so I just, it was- um, Look at Japan like and the United States too. Yes. I mean, uh, the, you know, the jungle does grow back. So it's very fascinating to talk about the frontier of space and where skirmishes or battles will take place between the U.S. and China. Something closer on the horizon is a potential conflict with Taiwan. I've asked other prominent and wise guests like you this question on the show. What's your view about how China, Taiwan, and the U.S. will play out? 
the honest answer is that I don't know. Uh, <laughs> you have to you have to guard against um, creating a, a war by the ceaseless expectation of it. I worry sometimes that we're talking ourselves into a war with China, and the Chinese are doing the same. It shouldn't be necessary. The point that our most senior officials keep making to the Chinese is the status quo has been really good for both of us on Taiwan. It's meant to be unresolved and ambiguous. That's what we agreed basically to do. We accept that there's one China. You accept that you have no uh, immediate intention to uh, impose a, a reunification by force. And that's we, we live with that. And China has prospered in an almost unimaginable way. Taiwan has prospered. Why do you want to mess with that? That's what our officials keep saying to the Chinese. Xi Jinping uh, has said publicly that he would like to resolve this issue of the eventual unification of Taiwan with China in his generation, I think meaning in his presidency. That's scary to people. She has instructed the PLA, the, the Chinese military, to be ready to take Taiwan by force by 2027. Uh, four years away. That's scary to people. Uh, just listening recently to the commander of Indo-PACOM, our, our forces that would manage a conflict with Taiwan, I mean, he, he talks about getting ready to fight that war. There's no question in his mind that the United States would be involved in that war, even though our policy remains one of, of strategic ambiguities, as they put it. I still think that's the right policy. I think strategic clarity saying, yes, we would go to war to, to protect China, Taiwan is a, is a mistake. It would make war more likely, not less. But that's, that's my own view. The consequences for China in terms of their economy, and we have to remember this is now a Chinese economy that's on a descending growth curve from what it, what it had been. The consequences of that war in providing better lives for Chinese people who their bargain with the Communist Party is our lives will keep getting better. It'd be catastrophic. And I think they, they understand that. So I don't think war is inevitable. When I visited Taiwan, you can't visit Taiwan and not be moved by just the passion that Taiwanese people have for democracy. It's extraordinary. They, they love it the way Americans love it. They want to be free. Uh, I think Chinese people uh, on the mainland feel the same way, but are intimidated from it. So, um, you know, the potential conflict is there. Uh, I just, a lot of smart people in the Biden administration in particular are trying to think of how to, how to contain that conflict, deter the Chinese, but open pathways to talk to them so that we'll get through this. And also fair to say that she is more wily and wise than Putin? She would not make the mistakes that Putin has made. She, um, I'm struck by his ability to reorient policy quickly when it's failing. He's also intolerant of corruption. The, the deal that Putin made with his oligarchs was steal as much money as you want, just stay out of politics. She decided that corruption was destroying the Communist Party, and he was right. Regional local party chiefs were selling favors to these wildly successful Chinese businesses. PLA generals were selling commands under their authority. The Chinese intelligence service was open for business. So she saw that when he came to power in 2012. And unlike Putin, who just let corruption, the oligarchs continue, she instituted something called the Discipline Inspection Commission. And he began a purge. He has now purged a whole generation of leadership in the party, the army, and the intelligence service. They're all now his people. And that's what you're seeing is, is uh, I mean, that, that's why his authoritarian rule is so much more powerful than, than Putin's. Relatedly, I'm going to go back to your immutable optimism. You've said that there are people who are this summer developing something of a gloomy mood about the war in Ukraine, and you're saying that that's not right. Why is that? So uh, I think there's several factors and I'm conceding at the outset that as, as the point that we're talking at the end of July, uh, Ukraine's progress and its counteroffensive, its offensive to drive the Russians back has been, has been limited. Even so, you have a, a degree of disorientation among Russian forces that I think is, is extraordinary. First, in terms of their command and control, um, we know there was what Putin himself called an armed mutiny by oligarch warlord Yevgeny Prigozhin, who'd been commanding the Wagner militia. Who, as of this recording, Monday, July 31, lives. 
he lives, he operates, he propagandizes. Putin appeared to have declared him an enemy, and Putin is a man who wants to get even with his enemies, and yet he has decided he has to, to let Prigozhin for now continue to run, to operate more or less freely from what we can tell. Putin fears that Prigozhin had recruited allies within the Russian military, but also within the security services as Prigozhin marched toward Moscow. Uh, on that day of revolt, I think it was June 24, he got so close to Moscow because people allowed him to pass forward. He he had help, and and Putin knew that. He didn't know how 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 broad or deep that support for Prigozhin was. So I think he was afraid of Prigozhin, afraid that cracking down further would would rupture the whole system. So I, that's one thing that that to- he used the past tense. He was or still is. Um. I think he 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 still is, but I, this is an area where I have to be honest. I I just my own reporting is so is so thin. I hear what uh, Bill Burns, the head of our CIA, has said that there are fractures within within Putin's uh, ruling apparatus. The head of British intelligence, Richard Moore, said much the same thing two weeks ago. So they're describing a Russian system from the Kremlin on down that, that has that has fissures now. How deep, how consequential, I haven't heard anybody I trust answer that question. But you do see on Russian social media evidence of disorientation at the front, anger among troops, among lower level commanders. The Ukrainians may not have swept to the Sea of Azov or the Black Sea in this counteroffensive, but they have been day by day devastating Russia's ability to move logistics, to have supplies of, of artillery ammunition, to relieve forces that are exhausted. And they, they've been doing a pretty amazing job of surgically striking particular nodes. The reason they're, they're able to do that is because the incredible technology that we've given them, help them use, that allows them to, to target things, to use AI. To st- if something's here today, where will it be eight hours from now? And then go after it. The, the things that we're, we have done technologically, uh, I think, have been overlooked. But this is this is an algorithm war more than people realize it. I'll be right back with more of my conversation with David Ignatius. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I have a sort of fundamental question about your craft. And that is, you have chosen to cover in your journalism and in your opinion writing, something that's very difficult to cover, right? Spying, national security, intelligence gathering. And something you said earlier in the interview kind of has sat with me, and that is, with respect to something, and I can't remember what it was, it might have been nuclear capability, you said that the people you talk to are very, very, very tight-lipped and don't reveal much. But there are other things that are also supposed to be under the blanket of confidentiality and classification, that by implication you suggested they do talk about. So is it the case that people in government, in your experience, do their own sort of prioritizing of what's sensitive and what's not sensitive that's separate from the technical classification of information? Well, I, yes, I, th- I think I think people do do that. I, I think there's an understanding that um, 
as a top uh, Pentagon official said, uh, as the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff two years ago, it's impossible to deter an adversary when everything's secret, or as he put it, when everything's black, meaning it's it's super classified, it's in special access programs that just a tiny handful of people know about, and your adversary doesn't know. So how is the adversary deterred? If the adversary doesn't know you have the capability to defeat them in something they might try to do. Uh, that that was only- a central issue, by the way. I'm just, I'm, I keep thinking about Oppenheimer, which I know you haven't seen. I saw it over the weekend. And it's related to the debate of whether or not it was important for the world to see what the capability of an atomic bomb was. Is it a little bit like that? It is It is like that. Uh, I'm familiar. I haven't seen the movie, but I, I, I know the wonderful book by my friend and colleague, Evan Thomas, called Road to Surrender, which is a detailed look at that precise issue uh, and what targets would be necessary. How big did they have to be to make the, the Japanese see that we could destroy them, they had to end the war, that they, they had to surrender. And uh, it was extraordinary how uh, lower level people kept putting <laughs> targets on the list the most senior people rejected it. I don't know if this is in Oppenheimer, but but Henry Stimson, the Secretary of War, said, we are not going to use the our nuclear weapon on, on Kyoto, the imperial city, this treasure of Japanese culture. It's just, it's wrong. Jap- Japan won't recover. We won't be able to pick up the pieces of that. It kept getting back on the target list. Leslie Groves, who was running the, running the program, thought, well, we need to really send a message this you know, Secretary Stimson doesn't get it, so he continued to, to target it. Um, you know, I, I think that dilemma of how you send messages without giving away secrets, um, yeah, I mean, that's as old as warfare. You mentioned uh, Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. I have a trivia question for you. What public job, what public office did Henry Stimson hold that was more important than Secretary of War? Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to flunk you'll, re- you'll realize how parochial I am in a moment. <laughs> he was U.S. Attorney of New York. He was U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. That is a fact. <laughs> that is a fact, sir. That was, and that's, he, no, that's, he, he profe- he, he's, he's a hero within the Justice Department in the Southern District. The highest award you can get as an assistant U.S. Attorney, either in the Eastern District or the Southern District of New York, and there are two awarded every year to... Uh, assistant U.S. attorneys in one office and into the other, it's called the Stimson Medal, named after Henry Stimson. And then he did he did slightly weightier things like advising Truman on whether or not the bomb should be dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But earlier in his career, he had that job. So do I get to ask you a question? Sure. Do you miss being U.S. attorney? Yeah, of course. Who doesn't miss subpoena power? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't mean just to be that. The, the, I'm assuming that work is pleasurable. Well, I miss a lot of things about it, including, most importantly, the people that I got to work with in law enforcement and in the office, and the staff, um, who are among the, the smartest and most dedicated public servants I've ever met. But you know, but one aspect of it is interesting that's related to what we've been discussing. When I was on the inside, I had a top secret clearance. We had a skiff, and I, I knew a lot of things that were going on. Now I don't know anything. So you kind of there's a little bit of a feeling of FOMO. You can be a novelist and make them up. Just, just like well, you. you're leading me to my next question. What do you and Charles Dickens have in common? <laughs> so some months ago, my new editor, David Shipley, who replaced the wonderful boss I had for many years, Fred Hyatt, came to me and said, you're a columnist and you're also a spy novelist. Why don't we combine the two? Why don't we do what was common in the time of Charles Dickens, which is serialize a piece of fiction in our news, newspaper? In Dickens' case, it was it was magazines, but Dickens wrote many of his novels uh, chunk by chunk, and readers would would read them in in the London magazines of the day, and just you would would be desperate to find out what happened to the characters. They have to wait until the next uh, installment. So, were you also paid by the word? I was not paid by the word. I was. I think I, Dickens was. Was he not? He, he was paid by the word. He. Uh, and he, he made a lot of them. <laughs> he he <laughs> a lot well, of that's words. One reason Dick Dickens was was <laughs> was prolix. Those are very long novels. Uh, it's one reason that they have uh, are, you know cliffhangers throughout the, the books. It's because the serialized part would end and people you know be what happens what happens next and then they would buy the next edition. I'm told that um, when these novels were just being distributed in the magazine form in the U.S. 
the the big um, clipper ships would be, uh, kind of come across the Atlantic with the next installment, and fast packet ships would would sail out to meet them from New York Harbor to be able to to tell the world whether Little Nell. Like a character in one of Dickens' novels, famously, is, is little Nell is she dead or alive? So people uh, hung on every word. We tried, obviously, a frail uh, imitation of that. Published over a week, right before Fourth of July weekend, a serialized spy novel, four parts, one every other day, uh, written by me, taking something that had happened in real life between the U.S. and Chinese spy services and then inventing and embroidering a tale around that real fact. And I think from reader reaction, um, it was an experiment that worked enough that we're going to try it again at Christmas time. Oh, good. But you wrote the whole thing before each installment was published. I did. I did. I was. I, Dickens, Dickens was doing it the, from episode to episode, right? Yes, he was. He was winging it. I, w- I would, would never dare to. And it's not clear that. that he knew where everything was going. I mean, do you, do you outline in advance? So I outlined this in great detail. I wanted to know just where this, you know, double flip would land. I um, wanted to think carefully about about each episode, how to have a cliffhanger. Uh, and I'm, I'm just not as daring as, as Dickens to, to wing it and to kind of figure it out along the way. Is it more important to you, as some novelists have said, to know where you begin or to know where you're going to end? You try to know both. Knowing the voice that's going to tell the story is another way of saying knowing where you begin. Sometimes, rarely for me, that voice is in the first person. But the third person narrator varies from novel to novel, writer to writer. Uh, and you have to understand who's telling the story and then how it's going to be told. What's What's the time space across which the arc of the story is going to happen? I've begun to experiment a little bit with um, different threads of time. One is three years ago, one is yesterday, that, that kind of come together in the telling of the story, and then the story kind of finally forms a tight core. You understand what's motivating the characters and then moves forward in a linear way. I have always been struck. I, I've written now 13 novels. 12 of them published, by the way in which the characters themselves begin to take over. When you start a book, you don't really understand the character very well. But as the character emerges, the character, this sounds corny, but you know, begins to tell you what they're going to do next, just in terms of how they've evolved. So the, the book just can't be the way you initially imagined it because you didn't fully understand who the, who the players were. Do you, do you follow the principle of, of uh, I think Stephen King says in one of his great books on writing, the, he thinks of a scenario or a situation, and then he just writes down what the characters do. Is it like that? It's a little bit like that. So one thing that I, I've said often about writing is that, in my experience, it's pre-conscious. You, you lay down the frame, but then uh, when you're in the, this web of storytelling, the point is really to get your conscious self out of the way so that this very mysterious other consciousness that writes your dreams, that uh, where the, the ideas fall into your head when you're taking a shower, that, that that consciousness takes over. And I think writers often try to obliterate their conscious selves to make room for the for this more creative side through alcohol, drugs, crazy behavior. One sort of, I think they're just trying to get intrusive, the conscious. They're trying to get out of their own head. So which combination of alcohol and drugs do you use? Oh, uh, you know, that's that's classified. No. The, uh, <laughs> but is it the most reasonable. highly sensitive type of classified information, David, or the kind that you would like it's, to share? It's, it's uh, so uh, happily, I have never been somebody who suffered from writer's block. I love, I love writing on deadline uh, have since I began in journalism. So that's, that's a little bit insane to me. Um, and I was going to ask you the question, which maybe I know the answer to, which is more terrifying to you or maybe neither the tyranny of the blank page when you're writing a novel and waking up in the morning and trying to write the next chapter or the tyranny of the blank page when you have a column due? So um, neither is terrifying because I've, I've been through it a lot of times. You, you uh, It takes a while for um, your consciousness to disappear enough to, to begin writing. I mean, writing a column is, is the same way. I, again, I love deadlines because the pressure is just so intense that um, it's like just becomes like playing a, a, a sport. You know, you're just in it. It's just happening. 
and I, I know colleagues are a special lot who have a kind of writer's block problem. I've never had that. I just, I don't know how, how I'd, how I deal with it. It's one reason I always like to have a contract and delivery date for each novel before I start it. So, I so you have neither writer's block nor also something I think is slightly different subject matter block. Do you ever wonder what you're going to write about? I once had George Will, another prolific writer and columnist, said he never has a problem. He always has five ideas in his head about what the next column is going to be about. Do you also have a multiplicity of ideas at all times? I do, but a lot of them are bad. Um, <laughs> and Who vets them for you? Do you vet them yourself or do you so, have some? Um, I'll, I'll sometimes try a column and it just it's just crap. It's obviously no good. So <laughs> are you are I'll, you a good self editor? Pretty good, but I, there are columns of mine that have gotten into print that somebody should should have stopped. I mean, one problem with with being having done this for a while, people respecting you is they defer. Well, oh, geez, you know, I may not get this, but there must be a reason, or David would, wouldn't have written it. And there's some that I, when I look back, I should have just, uh, spiked it. I said earlier that, that the creative work was pre-conscious, but you need to be highly conscious and critical when you look at your at your work because a lot of it just just isn't isn't very good. It isn't interesting. It doesn't tell people something they don't know. It isn't you know. I mean, a, a, a column sometimes tells you what other people think about something without telling you what the columnist thinks. That's a terrible mistake. It sounds like a version of, of something that Hemingway I think said that I've quoted on the show before, which has always fascinated me. I think he said, "Write drunk." Edit sober. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly the same point. I don't want to cause any spoiler issues for folks, but I did read with some interest that you were very critical of the season finale, or I guess the series finale of Succession. I thought it was quite good. What gives, David? <laughs> I uh, had come a long way with those characters. I thought that it just began to come apart. The problem with that s series was that the characters were so unlikable that uh, making a powerful point is, I mean, I, I like a, a piece of, of drama that I've invested many hours in, whether it's reading or, or watching, to take me to a, a, a place at the end that that's that's powerful. I the same feeling about The Bear, the, the second season of The Bear that I did. I just about, watched that. About Succession, I just didn't like where it ended. And I thought the, the endings were both similar and that kind of, you know, the good guys didn't win and who are the good guys? But who anyway? are the good guys, right? And it was that kind of, that kind of- I mean, of wasn't ending. wasn't a disappointing ending in some ways based on what you've just said, inevitable? So people have said that to me um, and maybe that's the truest outcome. You wouldn't want any of the characters in succession to triumphantly succeed um, because they're all loathsome. And that's really the point, I, I, I get that. Let's say, I mean, I, I've written uh, novels about about characters that I hated, but I wanted, I wanted to construct a story where you end up, you know, with with a, a clarity, a takeaway that I didn't feel at the end of Succession. I, I, I mean, my I think my view is a minority here, but that's what I felt. How do you feel generally about the realism with which intelligence officials and the CIA in particular are depicted in films and TV? And I'm thinking in particular of a show that I watched the first few seasons of um, with great enthusiasm, Homeland. How do you think about those programs? So I distinguish between the James Bond, uh, Mission Impossible School, which, you know, it's entertaining, but it's junk. I mean, it has nothing to do with what intelligence officers actually do. What they spend most of their time doing is planning, sitting around, waiting, waiting for the right opportunity, meticulous analysis of, of things, not, not very dramatic, like watching somebody type, you know, so the, the Jason Bournes and, and James Bonds are, are fun to watch. I thought Homeland was really fun to watch. I thought, you know, Claire Danes and Mandy Patinkin just inhabited their characters. I thought it was much closer to real life. I was uh, one of many, many people who got to sat in in consulting sessions with uh, oh. with the two of them and talk about stuff. And uh, I got a cool um, Homeland jacket that I get to wear. Uh, that was my thank you. Um, so maybe that prejudices my view. I, but I thought it was I thought it was really good. The the best the best period visual. TV or cinema uh, take on intelligence I've ever seen is the French uh, TV series, uh, The Bureau, Le Bureau, 
I don't know if you've seen that, but if you haven't, um, your listeners, I have not. It, so invest the time. It's if you're if you're interested in the world of intelligence, there's nothing as as good as this in my view. Check it out. Did you see Fauda? I, I, I started a Fauda. Um, I spent so much time covering the Israelis and the Palestinians. I just couldn't. Uh, <laughs> it felt like work. I could, it, it felt like I just didn't want to do it. So I, I stopped it. But people say it's great. Not, not, not putting it down. Putting aside streaming shows and television shows, single best spy movie? So I'm a Graham Greene nut. And the one that I find consistently entertaining and spooky is The Third Man set in Vienna. Uh, the sound of that little zither playing when the Joseph Cotton character is watching uh, Orson Welles walk over, I guess a woman walk away. That, that for me, um, just hits every note in a spy drama. It's mysterious. You don't really understand what's going on until the very end. It has a wistful... Um, you know, shades of gray feeling about about the kind of moral universe we live in. So I, that would be my number one. You know, so there you have it. Final word, the third man. You know, the funny thing, I don't know if he was kidding or not. Leon Panetta once came and visited the Southern District. And I think he was asked the question about recruitment at the uh, CIA. And he said, every time a, a new Bond movie comes out, recruiting goes up. <laughs> I don't know if that's <laughs> true or not, but it's a good funny fact. It is, a, it is a funny fact. And on that note, David Ignatius, thank you for your work. Thank you for your novels and your new serialized novella. Wish you luck, and we'll hope to see you soon. Thanks, Chris. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Ignatius. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is Noah Ozilai, David Kurlander, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.